The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. All right. Good morning, church. Good to see you this morning. Uh, that's the best part of the, uh, of the text that was just read over us. The rest of it is really, really hard. Uh, so let's get to work. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab a hold of them and let's open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, 1 Peter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. You can open uh, your Bible. You can open a phone or a tablet to 1 Peter 2. Uh, we do have hardback black Bibles under every chair. We'd love for you to, to see this uh, text with your uh, own eyes, reading it from your own text. We don't put sc- uh, verses on the screens here, so grab a hold of one of those. Uh, if you're looking for 1 Peter 2 in those books, uh, it's page 1014, but 1 Peter 2 is where we're going to spend time. As you're turning there, uh, I I don't know if you have picked up on this the same way that I have. I certainly have. Uh, But it it seems that in my lifetime, so almost 40 years at this point, uh, that we are living in a day and age where the political arena is more hostile than anything I've experienced in my life. Now, now, I have been told uh, from, from other people, my parents, uh, other friends, that in the late 60s and 70s, uh, it was far more hostile than even today. Uh, I don't know if that's just their opinion or not. I've even been told that during the Cold War, it was pretty wild, okay, that it was politically a bit nuts at that point. But listen, at that point, I'm, I was six, I was six years old at that point in the 80s when this was going on, okay? Uh, And when you're six, you're not exactly like dialed into politics, or or at least I hope you're not, right? Like I hope that your six-year-old right now is not as dialed in as you are. Like I hope you're not like, man, this whole like, you know, nationalism versus socialism thing. Like you're telling your six-year-old about it and you're like, you're gonna blame Biden or Trump for this one day. Like I I hope you're not doing that. Like I just hope, I'm just, this is some counsel, some coaching on parenting, okay? Let them play with Legos, okay? That's just better parenting. But, but it just seems to me that there's this hostility right now in the political arena. And listen, it's almost like a sinful, ignorant, wicked rhetoric that's dominating our current two-party system. Like the right versus left, the elephant versus donkey, the red versus blue thing seems to me on this like all time crazy level. And what's more, I'm finding that it's sneaking its way into Christians. It's showing up in Christians as well. So our text today in 1 Peter chapter 2 addresses the governing authorities, Okay, Uh, and I thought it would be helpful. Now we'll find out tomorrow when I open my inbox whether or not this was actually helpful. But but I, I I thought it would be helpful for us to see what Peter says and instructs us on how we are to interact with the government as Christians. So this is going to be fun. Okay, this is my plan. Uh, It's to take a look at our text and see what it says about the government. We're going to talk about the government today. This is going to be good times, okay? And I know some of you are like, oh, no. I brought a friend today, right? Like, this is is not smart. This is not smart, okay? Um, And and you might be right. Okay, I know, I know, I know. Um, But listen, it's here. It's, it's It's in the book. So let's handle it. 
Let's handle it just like we would handle any other text, okay? Now, before we get there, before we turn to uh, our text today, let me remind you where we are because this is in a context, okay? First Peter chapter two is a part of the letter of First Peter. Peter is addressing Christians in the Roman Empire, Okay, Rome, think gladiator. That's what's going on here, okay? Roman Empire. And he has been calling these Christians exiles. In the beginning of this book, he has been calling them exiles uh, because Christians are not primarily citizens of the place they reside. As Christians, their primary identity is their relationship with God, their relationship with Jesus, their Christianity is what primarily defines them and everything else then follows. They are Christian first and then a Roman Empire citizen or slave or what have you second. And so Peter has been instructing these Christians how to live. That's what we've been covering the first uh, number of weeks in this book. Peter has been instructing first personally how Christians should behave personally he calls them to obedience. Secondly, he moves into like a corporate behavior, instructing those Christians how to live in community together. He calls that a spiritual house, or we would say the church. And today he turns to how Christians are to interact in the social pecking order of their time. And it is analogous to us today. Specifically, he talks about three relationships. The relationship between the Christian and government, the government authorities. Then he talks about the slave and master relationship. And finally, the husband and wife relationship, which we're actually going to take on next week. Uh, so that's where we're at. How do Christians function in the social order of the Roman Empire? And I would say of the United States of America. Let's look at our text together. First Peter chapter two, we're going to start in verse 13. First Peter two, starting in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Okay, stop right there. The word be subject, that's how it's translated in uh, the ESV, be subject is the Greek word hupotasso. Hupotasso, okay? Uh, that word literally can be translated be subject to. So that's a great translation. But the other way that it's translated most often in the Greek is submit yourself to. Be subject to or submit yourself to the governing authorities, to every human institution. Now, hear me. Uh, we don't like to talk about submitting. Americans don't. We, we're, we're Americans, okay? We threw off the Brits, threw that tea in the river, right? Like we've done the stuff. We are not submitting types of people. And it's because, I think, it's because we think submission is analogous with inferiority. That submitting to something implies inferiority, which, listen to me, it does not. Textbook definition of submission is not implying any sort of inferiority. Submitting yourself to someone or something is simply yielding to another's authority. It's simply yielding. It's actually, it requires you to be strong enough to make the determination to submit. And we're gonna talk about this at length, but Peter says, submit yourself to every human institution. You see that word every? Wanna bet what that word means in the Greek? All. 
or every, okay, so like all or every. So if the human institution that you're thinking in your mind right now, do I need to submit to this? If it falls in the category of every or all, it's covered, okay? Peter says, submit to those things. He's commanding Christians to submit to every rightful authority that's over us. That's half a verse, okay? Let's keep going. Middle of verse 13. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So in other words, what Peter's telling us here is that the government is actually supposed to exist to punish evil, punish evildoers, and to support and prop up the common good. That's the idea here. That's what the offices of authority are supposed to do and why they exist under God's sovereignty. So, hey, I just want you to understand off the bat here that in the mind of the apostle Peter, okay, in the mind of, the P- of Peter, and really we could look at Paul, we could go all through the New Testament writers, all through the Bible, governing authorities are a good gift from God to uphold and work towards human flourishing. That's, that's biblical. You might have questions about the authorities that you're under, but they are there on purpose from God as a good gift to uphold and work towards human flourishing. Now they can get messed up. We'll get there, but, but that's where they start. Okay, look at verse 15. For this is the will of God. So you should pay attention to that. You ever wonder, hey, what's, what's God's will? He just said, okay, this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now look at verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the emperor. All right. This is what Peter is commanding Christians in the social pecking order of his time and our time is that we are called to submit to the government. Submit to the government. So the main questions that then we must deal with from this text are how? Like, how do we submit to the government when there's so much about their lives and about their beliefs and about their policies that, frankly, we disagree with, that maybe we find disturbing? Like, like, like what about when, when government doesn't live up to the mandate like, like, what if they start to do things that go against God's ways and God's word? What do we do? What do we do there? Because that's more akin, frankly, to our situation, and it's absolutely more akin to what's going on in Peter's cultural context. Okay, Peter says, honor the emperor in his context in the first century Roman world. And we need to realize that that Peter would not have endorsed the vast majority of what his governing leaders did. You just gotta know that. He's not like, he is not like pro-emperor in this moment. 
He's not like voting for the emperor. Not that he had the option, okay? He's not like vote for Caesar, like button on his shirt. I voted. He didn't get that opportunity. You get that? This is a different climate. And yet he says to honor, honor the emperor. So let me give you some context, okay? This letter was written around 60 AD, 60, 60 AD, about 30 years after Christ's uh, death and resurrection. Okay, so 60 AD, which means at this point, the emperor in the Roman empire that Peter's talking about is a guy named Nero, Nero. So if you've heard of him, okay, uh, good. Can we do a little bit of history work on this? That'd be, well, it doesn't really matter. Okay, because I'm gonna do it anyway. Nero is the third in a trio of truly horrible Caesars in the Roman Empire and their history. Three terrible Caesars. It started with a guy named Caligula, then it became Claudius, and then Nero. Let me tell you about these three guys, okay? Caligula was a real piece of work, real piece of work. Uh, Shortly after becoming Caesar, Caligula had his mother and his brother killed, uh, to make sure they'd never challenge his throne, okay? So a family man. Uh, he, he, he openly committed incest with three of his sisters. He installed his favorite horse as a senator and then later promoted him to council, which is like, how does that even work? <laughs> like, how do you, how, all in favor, I, all opposed? Yeah. yeah, okay. That's a dad joke right there. <laughs> How many of you had that in your brain before I even said, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's, you want to know something weird about Caligula? Caligula once got upset at the weather and he declared war on Neptune, the, the, the god, uh, the Roman god of the sea. This is historical, okay, you can read about this. He ordered his soldiers to take whips to the water, beat the waves as punishment, and then bring home seashells to symbolize plunder taken from his domain. Caesar, right? Hail Caesar. Uh, That's Caligula. After him, you have a guy named Claudius, okay? Who may have been a hair less crazy than Caligula, all right? Uh, But was every bit, if not more, so cruel. Uh, Claudius is really the one who began persecution against Christians. He's the one who really began the persecution against the Christians. He kicked Jewish Christians out of Rome because he heard that they were proclaiming this statement, Jesus is Lord. And and that was a statement that was uh, usurped from Roman culture because they would pronounce the Evangelion, the good news of Caesar, that Caesar is Lord. And the Christians had taken that and they said, no, 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 Jesus is Lord. He's like, get out. Okay, that's Claudius. Claudius is then succeeded by his nephew, Nero, when Nero's mom killed Claudius in his sleep so that her son could, could replace him. So again, just crazy, okay? Nero turned out to be the worst of the three. Worst of the three. He was one of the cruelest, most sadistic Christian haters of all time. Okay, Uh, he intentionally set fire to Rome. uh, And you might know this, he stood on his balcony watching Rome burn, playing the harp like uh, some, some poet, some like tragic poet. Then what happened is Nero goes on to blame the whole thing on the Christians, use it as a pretext to round up Christians and start feeding them to lions. Okay, Nero would have parties. We have record of this. And he would impale Christians on stakes, set their bodies on fire and use them as light for his garden parties. 
Okay, Nero crucified so many Christians that the famous Roman roads were said to be lined for miles and miles in between towns with crucified bodies. This guy was, this guy was sick. I mean, I, 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 I looked for the sickest story I could find, so I know you'd want to hear this. Um, at one point, Nero got so upset with his wife, who was pregnant, that he kicked her to death so he killed her and the baby, felt bad about it, found a young boy who resembled his wife, captured him, castrated him, married him in public, and called that boy his dead wife's name. I know that's offensive. That's who Peter just said, honor that empire, honor that emperor. That's who he's talking about. Makes, makes our political climate feel a little less weighty, just a little, but a little less weighty. Now, I want to lighten it up a little bit, okay? Because if you, if you know your Bible, if you're familiar with your Bible, there might be some things going on in your mind right now. When I say, when I say uh, submit to every human authority, every governmental authority, you might be like, wait, wait, hold on a second. Okay, aren't, aren't submitting to the authorities is one thing, Peter, but, but it's certainly not the only message that the Bible shows us, right? And you might be thinking in your mind of some things like Exodus. Okay, Exodus, the second book of the Bible. Didn't God go to Moses and tell him to go to Pharaoh, the emperor of that time, the ruling authority in Egypt of that time, and tell Pharaoh to let my people go? Like, didn't God tell Moses to disobey the governing authorities? And for, in fact, Moses wouldn't even be there. Like it, like, it wouldn't even be Moses in that moment if the midwives back in the early chapters of uh, Exodus hadn't disobeyed the law. Remember this? In the, the law in Egypt at the time was for the midwives to kill any Israelite baby boy uh, because they were afraid of how much the Israelites were multiplying in the land. And so the midwives at that point disobeyed the law and sent little baby Charlton Heston down the Nile. Remember this? You've seen that movie? Okay. They put him in a basket and he floats on down the Nile and, and God commended the midwives for blatantly disobeying the law. How about, uh, you know, the prophets? The prophet Daniel, his book is fascinating. We like the first half, don't like the second half as much. Uh, but, but there's one chapter where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know these three, uh, from Daniel chapter three. Nebuchadnezzar, okay, sets up this idol, a statue to himself, commands all the people to bow before it. And those boys, they say, we ain't doing it. We're not bowing down to an idol. They disobeyed the authority over them and were punished for it. They get thrown into the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire. He sees four guys, not three, walking around in the fire. He's like, didn't we throw in three? Why am I seeing four? The one looks like uh, the son of the gods, right? Most scholars think that this is a Christophany, a pre-incarnate showing up of Jesus in the flames. So Jesus is showing up in the Old Testament in the moment of these kids' rebellion and is like, hey, I want to get in on that. So what do you mean obey every governing authority? I mean, Daniel is a ripe example. Daniel chapter six, Darius is now the king. Nebuchadnezzar's long gone. And he has this injunction where he, where he says, hey, for the next 30 days, no one's allowed to pray to any God. 
Remember this story? Daniel hears about this, goes to his house, opens the, out, the upper windows and prays on his knees towards Jerusalem for three times a day as he has always done. I mean, Daniel is in glad rebellion against this law and he even liked Darius, but he's in glad rebellion regardless of the consequence. He gets thrown in the lion's den for that. And then, okay, you're like, oh, well, that's all Old Testament. Let's talk New Testament. Let's talk our boy Peter. Okay, Acts chapters three and four. Peter, newly like filled with the Holy Spirit, has preached some sermons that have saved thousands. He like created a mega church in a day. Dude's legit, okay? And, and, and in chapter three, Peter finds himself walking along and there's this lame beggar that's just laying there begging for money. And, and Peter addresses him and is basically like, hey, I'm in, I'm in ministry, so I don't have any money, okay? But, um, <laughs> but, but what I do have... I give to you, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the man gets up and he walks and Peter is arrested for it. And he's brought in front of the council. And in the council, they charge him not to speak in the name of Jesus Christ any longer. And Peter's response is this. Is it better to obey you or God? We can't not speak of what we've seen and heard. So, so Peter, that doesn't sound like you're obeying the authorities. Is this double talk? Like, what are you doing here? So this is the question. How do we know when it's time to submit? And how do we know when it's seemingly time to disobey? Because both are presented in the Bible. Both are presented. Well, Peter gives us three other commands, other imperatives in verse 17, other than honor the emperor. And I think the key is in those. So look again at verse 17. This is what he says. Honor everyone. That's the first imperative. Love the brotherhood. That's the second. Fear God and all three of those will then inform how we honor the emperor. So let's work through those. I think this is really helpful, okay? First, honor everyone. Honor everyone. Everyone, again, in the Greek means everyone. Good. Man, you guys know Greek. I'm so proud. Uh, Christians are to treat every single person in the entire world with honor and dignity and respect. Because all people, every human person has been created in God's image. It's the, the, the doctrine of the imago Dei, the image of God. It does not matter who you are, how smart you are, what you believe, where you live. You are, every single person is created in God's image and therefore we are to honor that image in them. Interestingly, that's the exact same word, honor, that's used in the last imperative, Honor the emperor, honor everyone. So Peter is also saying that those who are uh, with more power and more dignity in this world are not exalted over just ordinary people. Nero's got the same image of God that Peter has, that that lame beggar has, that you and I have. And this is why Paul says in Romans chapter 12 to outdo one another in showing honor. 
the posture of the Christian first towards everyone they meet is to honor them because of the image of God. So submitting to the government is rooted first in how we see everybody. It starts in how we see everybody that is created. Then the second thing he says is love the brotherhood. So now he's dialing it in a little bit more. Love the brotherhood. That is love other Christians. Love other Christians, honor everybody, but then love the brotherhood. Now, in this context of submitting to governing authorities, here's how I think we should apply love the brotherhood. Um, Our political disagreements should never drive such a wedge as to come between our love for other Christians. That might sound impossible, but I think that's what this means. So I've told you about this guy, uh, this historian, Larry Hurtado before, but Larry Hurtado is this church historian, uh, secular historian. He's done a lot of work. He uh, specializes in the early Christian movement, the first 300 years of the Christian movement. And, and he makes these comments that there are, th- there are four marks that the early church had that set them apart from the larger Roman culture. And these are the four things, those four marks. First, the early church was multiracial, during a Roman biased culture. Every creed and color was welcome in the church. That was new, that was novel. Second, the early church was about hospitality to the poor and the sick, even at great expense to their own lives. Like we would say like missions work, benevolence work, work, mercy ministries, charity ministries. These were new ideas that the Christian movement came up with and it marked them as different from a very domineering-based, power-based culture that was Rome. The third mark is that the early church was sexually conservative in a culture where the expectation was that men, not women, men would have sex outside of their marriage room. It was the expectation, and Christians proposed marital fidelity at a level that had not been practiced in the Roman Empire. And then fourth, the early church was a community committed to the sanctity of life. Abortion did not happen the same way that it happens today, but the establishment of saving children from exposure, from trash heaps, raising them, orphans, adoption, things like that, began in the Roman Empire with the Christian movement. Now, those are four features that I think are so fascinating because the the irony is that two of those marks, the mark about race and, and the mark about the poor, sound politically liberal or left to us. And then the marks about the sexual ethic and the life ethic sound politically right to us, to our ears today. And I, and I bring that up. I bring that up I, because as a Christian in America today, I'm just going to say this. There is not a clear political party that everyone should side with. No, don't get mad, no, don't get mad at me yet, okay? I'll say this. There is good and bad on both sides of our political aisle. There's good and bad on both sides. And our world, 
even sometimes ourselves, we want to be all in on one side or all in on the other. We want to either, like the world wants us to be pro-emperor or anti-emperor, but there's no room in the middle. But a Christian is not captive to any emperor. No one. That means, listen, we honor them all and we critique them all. We honor all and we critique them all. Now, now, now here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you don't align with a party. You have freedom to align with the party that you choose. You have freedom to vote in that way. Okay, in this country, we have the ability to work towards change that Peter never would have had in the Roman Empire. Are you serious? In our two-party Western Democratic Republic, our system, we have a way that we can actually engage that Peter never did. So we don't take this injunction from Peter as like a permission for us to just sit back and let the powers that be do their thing. That's not at all what I'm saying. No, no, no. If and to the degree you desire to, that you have an option and the ability to do something, like vote or sign petitions or even run for office, to the effect that that governing, uh, governing uh, rulers and authorities affects where you live right now, you can and maybe you may even should participate in those things. But listen to me. It does not give us the right to dishonor those who we disagree with. Disagreeing and dishonoring are two different things. And the Bible gives plenty of room for disagreement. It doesn't have a lot of good things to say about dishonoring. Especially your brothers and sisters. Oh, God help us. Listen to me. I said this all through this sermon series. You're a Christian first. You're a Christian before you're a Republican. And I hope you're a Republican. You're a Christian before you're a Democrat. And I hope you're a Democrat. You're, you're, you're a Christian before you're a moderate. And I hope you're a moderate. I hope we have all of you in this place. And I don't ever show my cards as to where I land. You know why? Because when I'm up here, I'm a preacher of this. And I, listen, I have my own opinions. I'll step away from this. We go get coffee. We might be able to talk some politics. But when I'm up here, that's not how I play. So, so, so when I share with, with people my political affiliations and my, my ideas and my thoughts, sometimes they're like, oh, I can't believe you believe that. I'm like, you've been sitting under my preaching for years. It's because I don't show those cards here. That's okay to have cards. It's not okay to bring them into this place inappropriately. And furthermore, that means that if you're sitting in this room today, there ought to be people to your right and to your left that disagree with you politically. And listen, I'm looking out here. There are. Because <laughs> I follow y'all on Facebook, okay? I know where you stand, okay? Right? It's one of the things, it's one of the things I love about our church. Gosh, I've got friends who are more city pastors. I've got friends that are more rural pastors and their makeup tends to be a bit heavy on one side or the other, depending on the geographic location of their church. Our church is very much kind of in the middle. That doesn't mean we're all moderates, okay? Some of y'all are, but we got some Trump lovers. We got some Bernie lovers. We got everything in between. And that's okay, y'all. 
You're both welcome here. You're both in this room. You're both in the same D groups at times, okay? Fathom isn't one side or the other, and we must commit to love one another because we are citizens of the kingdom first and any political affiliation second. Love the brotherhood. Number three, and this is the good one, fear God. Fear God. So listen, believers are to honor the emperor, Nero, whoever's in office. We are to honor the emperor and show him respect because of his office, but we are not to fear them. Fear is reserved for God. And that supersedes honor and respect and agreement or disagreement. Fear God. Here's what that means. In submitting to authority, we must never disobey the commands of God. There's the caveat. There's the escape clause. Submit to the government unless it causes you to not obey God. There are certain lines we can never and should never cross. They just are. Okay, if, if, if the government one day tells us that we can't preach Jesus, that you're not allowed to preach Jesus as the only way of salvation, listen, we have to disobey. We can't not declare what we've seen. So what Peter said. Okay, if they tell us that we can't pray, that we can't sing, that we can't share, then, then listen, we disobey. We are called to that because we are citizens of that kingdom and that kingdom trumps our kingdom. Follow me on that, okay? Uh, we have to honor what God says about marriage. We have to honor what God says about life. We have to honor God, what God says about those things, regardless of what the government says. I mean, some of you feel good. How about this side, okay? We have to honor government with, with what it says about injustice and discrimination, like the poor, like, like those things we have, to, we have to obey. We have to sit under we can't stand along and go along with any kind of uh, injustice or discrimination, economic or, or racial or religious, any of those things. Th those things we cannot do because, because we are submitted, yes, to the governing authorities, but we're submitted to a higher authority. The authority of Jesus Christ and his revealed word to us. So yes, we submit to the government, but if our government, by law or by force, tries to dictate to the people of God that they be disobedient to God, we cannot acquiesce and we're to pay whatever penalty comes our way. This has historically been known as civic disobedience. Civic disobedience. Now don't pull that card out quickly because remember the Submit to, the, to every authority card is in the other pocket. You gotta have both of those and the balance there is really tricky. But there are times where we must be disobedient. Now listen to me, even in that place, you're not to be a jerk about it. 
Like even in those moments, you're not to be grandiose and big chested about it, but rather you're to walk in humility and compassion and grace, but actively rebelling. You continue in the character of a Christian, even as you rebel against an unjust authority. And then what happens as a result of that? The text says that people see Christ. That's what the text says. They're gonna see somebody, a follower of Jesus, who's confident that politics and earthly judges don't have the last word. They see people who belong to another kingdom. They see Jesus. And that's why verse 15, look at verse 15 again. It says, for this is the will of God. I emphasize that. That by doing good, that's honoring the empire. You should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is it, this was the most notable posture of the early Christians. And it's why by 300 something AD, Christianity became more than half of the empire. Why this thing didn't get snuffed out under such horrendous persecution. It's not because they were strong. It's because they were humble. So uh, Le- Leslie Newbegin, another church historian, says this. I'll put this up on the screen, this quote. He says this, the victory of the church over the corrupt Roman power did not come by seizing the levers of power. It was one when the victims knelt down in the Colosseum and prayed in the name of Jesus for the emperor. In doing so, the entire mystique of the empire, its spiritual power was unmasked, disarmed, and rendered powerless. Hey, how's Rome doing today? Been there lately? Rubble. And thieves, like pickpocketers, but that's, that's a new thing, okay? How's the church? We're here. Nothing can stop what Jesus is doing in his people. This is how Peter says we're to submit to the government. So how you doing on this? Okay. Uh, some of us need help on this one. It's not because you're bad people. It's just, gosh. Like I said at the intro of my sermon, this is the climate, that, the air that we breathe is not what we just talked about. God help us with this. How we submit to authority is how we live differently as Christians. That's how we do it in our pecking order. Okay, now here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna skip verses 18 through 20. No gasps, okay? Uh, that's because these cover the same idea, okay? They really do. They cover the same big idea, submission to unjust authority, but they do it in the cultural context of slave and master, that relationship in ancient Rome. And there's other household codes in the New Testament. We covered one in Ephesians last year that talk about slave and earthly masters that's a bit more akin to like maybe the workplace or those relationships. This is slavery and masters in the first century. There's not really a perfect analogous relationship to apply this one to, uh, but the same big idea is there. 
Okay, Peter's purpose is writing to encourage those who are experiencing injustice to patiently submit to that uh, and at times rebel against it. So, so I, I'm skipping those verses, I'm sorry, but we've got to look at verse 21 through 25 because in 21 through 25, what I had read over us this morning is where we find the model for how to submit to the government and why we do. So listen to these words. These are incredible. Listen to these. 21. For to this you have been called. Remember, you have been called to this. Because, so here's why you've been called to this. Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now think about him suffering under the unjust authorities of his day. Think about him at the end of his life, standing before Pontius Pilate. As I read these words, okay, think about Jesus. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Who's that? The father. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's why we submit to the government. That's why we submit to the president. That's why we submit to the emperor. That's why we submit to Nero. Because Christ did. And he did so perfectly. Do you see those things? In doing this, you are following in his steps. He didn't sin. He didn't sin when he's being accused of stuff. He didn't reciprocate evil for evil. He didn't repost nasty things on Facebook. Right? He didn't. He continually trusted God, the just judge. And finally, he does not call down the authority of the angels to remove him from the cross. No, what he does is he, he suffers. He bears our wounds. And he does it because we're like sheep who needed to be healed. We have gone astray and we need to return to the shepherd. Like, isn't that beautiful? That, that, that Peter says, hey, submit to the government. Why? Because of the gospel. How, listen, how you do politics is a gospel issue. It's a gospel issue. We submit because in doing so, we follow in Christ's steps. So here's how I want to end. We're out of time. I want to end this sermon a little different than normal. So I'm going to put a scripture on the, on the screen. This is 1 Timothy 2. Let me read this for us. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, 
intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, honor everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is our drumbeat. As believers in Christ, it's to honor the powers that be, respect all positions, every position of authority, and to be prayerful for them. Listen, Christians pray. That's what we do. We pray. So I want us to end our time together praying for our top leaders. What we're going to do is we're going to pray for our president. We're going to pray for our senators and for our congressmen. Congressman, sorry. Uh, and, And then we are going to, at that point, celebrate through taking the Lord's Supper, like we do every week, that our hope isn't in them. We're going to pray for them and then acknowledge where our true hope is found. Not in this country but in what Christ did on the cross. Now listen, okay, listen to me. You may disagree with these guys completely. You might disagree with them in many, many ways, but but hear me, if you can't pray for them, if you can't pray for them, then your allegiance is to the wrong country. I mean, you've really pledged your allegiance to what's transient and temporary instead of pledging your allegiance to what is not transient, to what is eternal. You're honoring the wrong Caesar. So you can hope for and vote for and even pray for change in political leadership. Gosh, I find some of the current administration's policies deplorable. And I'd say the exact same thing if the other side was in power right now. Regardless, Christians pray. That's how we honor the empire. So here, um, we're going to pray for these guys. I'm going to put their pictures up on the screen just to make everyone really uncomfortable. (laughs) Listen, we're going to pray for these men, okay? This is how we honor the emperor. I want us to pray for President Joe Biden, okay? Our two United States senators, Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper, and then Governor Jared Polis. Okay. I'm going to pray. Why don't you bow your heads, close your eyes, pray with me. Father, I thank you for these four men. Lord, I pray a prayer of blessing on all four of them. Uh, Lord, I pray protection over them. God, I, I, I pray that you would guide them and shape them and mold them If they don't know you, Lord, I pray you'd call them to yourself and woo them with your Holy Spirit unto salvation. God, that you would point them in godly directions in their politics. Lord, that you would grant them the courage that it would take to stand by those things. And Lord, for us, I pray that we would have wisdom. Lord, help us to become men and women who are informed and not prone to to hollow rhetoric. 
But Lord, that we would pay close attention to our world, to all that's going on, and that in turn, we would be good citizens. Good citizens whose allegiance is to you first, Father, but also understanding the government as a tool in your hands. Lord, I pray we are subject, that we submit to these authorities until the time that it may require us to be disobedient for you. So Father, I pray you'd give us courage. Like if this, if this thing gets stormier, as it gets messier, for us to be men and women of God who are steadfast with our roots in you. Help us, Jesus. We need it. And so Father, we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people agreed and said, amen.